0: We shall do a much better programming job, provided that we approach the task with a full appreciation of its tremendous difficulty, provided that we stick to modest and elegant programming languages, provided that we respect the intrinsic limitations of the human mind and approach the task as very humble
1: programmers. Hello. My name is Eric Normand. Welcome to my podcast.
0: Today I am reading from Edsger Weber
1: Dijkstra's 1972 Turing Award Lecture. I'm not going to read the whole thing, as I usually uh, only
0: excerpt uh sections that I think are important I think you should read the whole thing uh but I'm going to excerpt read from those excerpts and then uh comment on them and as I usually do with the Turing Award lectures I'm going to start by reading from the biography and uh, well there's he's done a lot of cool stuff so there's a lot to say uh, the biographies are usually very interesting, gives you some context, and explains like what was important about the person um, who won the award. Okay, again, this was in 1972. He was living in the Netherlands at that time. He later uh, started working at uh, University of Texas, Austin. That was in the '90s, so this was before that. Okay, he was born in 1930. Uh that puts him at 42 when he won the award. So not uh not unusual um for these awards. Uh they uh, so far they've happened around 42. And uh well, it's interesting that already in 1972 he was uh Considered important enough to get this. I did not know that. Uh, I know that he was mentioned many times in my computer science education. Uh, And, um, you know, for inventing, like, Dijkstra's algorithm, for instance. All right, so he was, uh, there are three things listed for why he was awarded the award. For fundamental contributions to programming as a high intellectual challenge. That's very interesting. Um, You know, perhaps reading as a historian, this means that at some point there was a recognition that software was as important as hard, if not more important than hardware. Um, I know several of the early. Uh, The early award winners, the Turing laureates, they were more focused on the machine. They were more focused on hardware, and even the first few emphasized how important it was that ACM was called the Association of Computing Machines. And Dijkstra seems to have a very striking uh, conflict with that, and we'll get to that. All right. So number two. For why he won the award for eloquent insistence and practical demonstration that programs should be composed correctly, not just debugged into correctness okay so he has a very strong uh, voice about how we should be programming and one of those aspects is that uh, we need to be using proofs and uh, bu- you know building them correctly the first time instead of Debugging them, okay. That's interesting. Um, I don't know how, because I mean, when I program, there's a lot of debugging. (laughs) It doesn't work the first way, the first time. So I'm not, I'm not sure if, if this, if what he said has had the effect that he thought it would, because this was 50 years ago now. All right, Uh, 49 years ago. For illuminating perception of problems at the foundations of program design. Okay, so that's interesting. It's illuminating perception of problems at the foundations of programs. Very cryptic. So let's read on. All right, I'm gonna read little sections from the biography. At the Mathematical Center, a major project was building the RMAC computer. For its official inauguration in 1956, Dijkstra devised a program to solve a problem interesting to a non-technical audience. Given a network of roads connecting cities, what is the shortest route between two designated cities? The best-known algorithms had running times, which grew as the cube of the network size. The running time of Dijkstra's algorithm grew only as the square. Developed in 20 minutes, while Dijkstra was relaxing on a cafe terrace with his fiancée, Maria C. Debits, his shortest path algorithm is still used in such applications as packet switching software for computer communications. Yeah, it's used way more than just in that. Um, This is what's known usually as Dijkstra's algorithm. It is still the um, definitive, shortest path algorithm. Um, and I think that it is really uh, telling <laughs> like of like this person's um, you know m- mental capacity, his intelligence, that he was he could do it in twenty minutes, whereas other people hadn't come up with this. So there's some some special he has a special mind uh that he could do this. Um and Dijkstra's algorithm is not like complicated. If you read it, it's a pretty, you know, normal for loop, right, or while loop. Uh you could write it yourself. Um could you write it, you know, could you come up with it yourself? Well, that's a different question. Okay. Um, Around the same time, Dijkstra invented another very efficient network algorithm for use in designing the X1 computer. Known as the minimum spanning tree algorithm, it finds the shortest length of wire needed to connect a given set of points on a wiring panel. He published both network algorithms in a single paper in 1959. Very cool. Um, Now, One thing is you could... You could look at this as like well, in the fifties, come on, software was so new that there was all this low-hanging fruit, and anyone around who was smart at the time could have just been picking up these easy algorithms that that we use today, possibly I'm not sure if um you know that's why you know he won the award, and other people didn't. Uh, other people had tried these algorithms. Similar algorithms, they got cubic growth, and he only had quadratic growth, pretty good. All right, let's continue. At the Mathematical Center, Dijkstra and J.A. Zonneveld developed the first computer for ALGOL, a compiler for ALGOL 60. So ALGOL 60 was a very designed language, it was designed as a specification that could run on. You know, platform independent, uh, sorry, independent. Uh, And so this was significant that he was writing the first compiler. He was probably the first to introduce the notion of a stack for translating recursive programs, reporting this seminal work in a short article. In the Oxford English Dictionary, the terms vector and stack in a computing context are attributed to Dijkstra. Okay, so again, a very important contribution that we should use a stack and the idea of a vector, which is, you know, a size uh, a sized array. In 1968, Dijkstra published "Go to statement considered harmful," arguing that the go to statement found in many high-level programming languages is a major source of errors and should therefore be Eliminated. So there was a huge commotion about this. It's a very, very uh, important paper uh, establishing the idea of structured programming and its benefits. Dijkstra was beginning to formulate some of his early ideas about programming as a mathematical discipline. He pointed out that software productivity and reliability is closely related to rigor in design, which eliminates software flaws at an early stage. Very interesting. Uh, I think that there's still a thread of that uh, in, in modern computing. Uh, people who want formal methods um, for you know testing and, and proving that your software is going to do uh, what you think it should. So he was early in that. All right. And then, final thing I'm going to read from this Dijkstra was the first to observe not only that non determinacy is central in computations whose components interact asynchronously, but also that even when no asynchrony is involved, non determinacy is an effective tool for reasoning about programs and simplifying program design. Okay, so another important thing, and this happened after he got the um, the Turing Award.
1: Okay, his Turing Award lecture is called "The Humble Programmer." Now, some people might call this
0: ironic because he does not appear to be a humble person in his Speech and actions uh, in fact, uh, Alan Kay has quipped that arrogance is measured in nanodijkstras. <laughs> the unit of of arrogance is nanodijkstras, which would imply that Dijkstra has one thousand nanodykstras uh, or one dijkstra uh right so. Uh, it's ironic, and we'll we'll maybe understand what he means by the humble programmer by the end of these
1: excerpts, and uh, hinted at it in the intro So, um, let's just read a little bit from it. As
0: a result of a long sequence of coincidences, I entered the programming profession officially. On the first spring morning of 1952, and as far as I have been able to trace, I was the first Dutchman to do so in my country. And that's really interesting that he he hasn't found anyone uh, earlier than him in the Netherlands, um, which is quite possible. You know, the this is very early 1952. And a lot
1: of the work had been done in uh, the UK and in the US. All right. So he's having kind of a an early career
0: crisis. He he wants to do physics and he wants to do computing, but he figures that he can't do both. And so he's thinking of dropping one and so he's now asking should i should i drop physics and just go into computer science all right so he's talking to his professor but was that a respectable profession after all what was programming where was the sound body of knowledge that could support it as an intellectually respectable discipline i remember quite vividly how I envied my hardware colleagues who, when asked about their professional competence, could at least point out that they knew everything about vacuum tubes, amplifiers, and the rest, whereas I felt that when faced with that question, I would stand empty handed. Uh, so he's he's kind of lamenting that there's no sound basis at that point in in the fifties for for programming. That there was no uh, curriculum, no known body of knowledge, uh, something that you could point at and say, like, I am qualified because I know all this stuff. Uh, and I feel like that's similar today. I mean, we do have computer science curricula at universities and things. But uh, as we know in, in the industry, uh, computer science degree. Uh, is not required. It's it's considered helpful, but uh, I guess computer science um, departments aren't creating enough um, graduates, and so companies have to accept people who don't have those degrees. and And they often say that that they do quite well anyway. That it's not required. Um, my wife is a doctor. This is this is purely personal, and they have a, a large body of knowledge that they consider essential to to practicing as a doctor and you have to learn it it's just pure like let's learn all this stuff and it's very rigorous very difficult and i while i was watching my wife study and she would talk about what she was studying I was jealous. I wish that we had that in our profession. Um, not to not to gatekeep, right? Not to say, "If you don't know this, you can't program as a you know, software engineer, let's say. But as a way to point people to, like, this is what you need to know." right? This has been evaluated, and there are studies of um, medical schools. Who they have this big curriculum, and then they they graduate people in the curriculum, but then they do studies where they go talk to those graduates two years later, and they say, "So all that stuff we taught you, what are is still useful to you today after two years?" And then they they give them the subset that they feel like this is the stuff I'm still using. That other stuff, so they're they're trying to. Make it smaller and figure out what was actually important in there. I don't know if we're doing that in computer science, but I feel like um, I feel jealous, I feel envious when, when I hear of other fields that has like a list. like, you definitely need this, you definitely
1: need that.: And of course, this was so early, like programming was, was there was no way you
0: even had people attempting. Like computer science curricula at universities. Okay, so uh, that was that's just my personal reflections on that. All right, so he's talking to his professor Van Weingarten, um, and he gives him some good. You know, he's talking about his interactions with him. After having listened to my problems patiently, he agreed that up till that moment. There was not much of a programming discipline. But then he went on to explain quietly that automatic computers were here to stay, that we were just at the beginning, and could not I be one of the persons called to make programming a respectable discipline in the years to come? So, this is a very um, insightful professor, perhaps. Um, I actually have heard this story from Dijkstra before. And I've taken this kind of thing to heart. Uh, Whenever someone complains, like I was just complaining, that perhaps they're they're like, this isn't a rigorous discipline. Um, There's all these problems with the field. Um, That's my advice to them is like, well, you're the one recognizing the problems and you're obviously passionate, interested in it. Maybe you have something to contribute because of that because you have this perspective on the problem. Uh so I put that in here because I I feel like this story affected me and I I want to share it. And then of course this sets him on a path because he like doesn't sleep la- that night and makes the decision uh right away that oh yes, I'm going to be the one to make this a rigorous discipline. And I feel like it does Kind of set the tone for everything he does later, Dykstra. That is. All right, uh, let's talk about some context. So he wants to explain that how in 1972, um, programming has a history that that determines how it is viewed, and that that kind of needs to change. So let's talk about that context. Let me try to capture the situation in those old days in a little bit more detail, in the hope of getting a better understanding of the situation today. While we pursue our analysis, we shall see how many common misunderstandings about the true nature of the programming task can be traced back to that now distant past. So, like I said, he's setting the context with this history. So, we'll go through the different items that he thinks. Are important to understanding how programming was viewed in 1972. The first automatic electronic computers were all unique, single copy machines, and they were all to be found in an environment with the exciting flavor of an experimental laboratory. Okay, we cannot deny the courage of the groups that decided to try to build such a fantastic piece of equipment. Now, we've gone over this before with some of our. Previous touring lectures, you know people like the project is build one computer right uh, you couldn't just Amazon order one online. Um, and they were still experimenting with how the computer would work uh, and and you know how to structure its memory like how, like what parts do you build it out of? In retrospect, one can only wonder that those first machines worked at all, at least sometimes. The overwhelming problem was to get and keep the machine in working order. The preoccupation with the physical aspects of automatic computing is still reflected in the names of the older scientific societies in the field, such as the Association for Computing Machinery or the British Computer Society, names in which explicit reference is made to the physical equipment. Okay, so I i touched on this before where previous especially the very early Turing laureates said computing the computer itself the machine is what ties us together. And he's making a distinct break with that. They were saying we should keep calling it the ACM, the Association for Computing Machinery, right? It sounds very archaic to us. Uh, and he's saying eh, it's kind of an old name, and it shows this bias toward the machine. Uh, Dijkstra has been known to say that um, computer programming is as much about computers as astronomy is about telescopes. Used to be, if you were an astronomer, you probably had to be an expert in like lenses and grinding glass and stuff. And while that's still very important to doing astronomy, uh, you can probably just buy what you need, at least unless you're making a new telescope. Um, so yes. so we're at this point where you can just buy computers, and the programming is um, is, a, is a different. It's different. And he's trying to emphasize that. All right. What about the poor programmer? Well, To tell the honest truth, he was hardly noticed. Okay, he uses he everywhere. I don't think there's a she in this whole thing. I apologize. Um, the English language has been undergoing changes because we've become more conscious of the, the bias that that introduces into our thinking. Um, I'm going to try from now on to say he or she. But I might mess up, I might
1: miss one. I apologize. Uh, this is a historical document, so um it is the way it is All right, well, to tell the honest truth, he was hardly noticed.
0: He or she was hardly noticed. The first machines were so bulky that you could hardly move them, and besides that, they required such extensive maintenance that it was quite natural that the place where people tried to use the machine was the same laboratory where the machine had been developed. We we've all heard um stories about how big these machines were. Like, you know, taking up a whole floor of a building. You'd never move them. You just build it in place and that's where it lives. And then they were so mm, they were so uh brittle. That they would break all the time, and you'd spend so much time um, maintaining it that that took up like more time than the programming task. The programmer's somewhat invisible work was without any glamour. You could show the machine to visitors, and that was several orders of magnitude more spectacular than some sheets of coding. Makes sense. You can have a glass wall and like say, hey, look at that, all those. All those machines are this one giant machine. Look how cool it is. Isn't it impressive? But then you show someone a few papers full of code, they don't understand that. The programmer himself or herself had a very modest view of his or her own work. The work derived all its significance from the existence of that wonderful machine. The code. Had to be written for that particular machine because there was only one and it was totally incompatible with any other machine. So, like that, that colors our view, or at least in 1972, the view in 1972, of the importance of programs. The programs had only local significance and also because it was patently obvious that this machine would have a limited lifetime they knew that very little of their work would have a lasting value all right speaks for itself the machine was usually too slow and its memory was usually too small its code would cater for the most unexpected construction so the the size of the machine physically was very big but the memory was small and it was so slow And then people still hadn't figured out what the machine instructions should be yet and how, what would the best way to structure it. And so often uh, to solve an actual problem in software, you'd have to do this weird, you know, set of instructions to get it to work. And that was kind of the. The art of programming at that time was translating like this real world problem into something that your computer could execute. Two opinions about programming date from those days. A really competent programmer should be puzzle minded and very fond of clever tricks. Programming was nothing more than optimizing the efficiency of the computational process in one direction or the other. So these are the two things that. Being a programmer was about being like a puzzle solver, and then that the this most of programming was about optimizing because the computer was so small. And I think we still have remnants of these today. It's it's I think it's fading over time, um, but we still have this idea of puzzles um you know like let's solve this problem in as few characters as possible or uh, oh look at this clever way of of getting this you know solving this hacker rank problem um and then optimizing the efficiency we still we still think about that You know, I still hear talk of like, oh, this operation is slightly more efficient than that one. It's there. Oh, this saves a branch, or, you know, things like that. One often encountered the naive expectation that once more powerful machines were available, programming would no longer be a problem. For then the struggle to push the machine to its limits would no longer be necessary. And that was all that programming was about. But in the next decade something completely different happened. More powerful machines became available, not just an order of magnitude more powerful, even several order of magnitude orders of magnitude more powerful. But instead of finding ourselves in a state of eternal bliss with all programming problems solved, we found ourselves up to our necks in the software crisis. Okay, this This deserves uh, talking about more deeply. So, you know, people were solving very, I mean, from today's point of view, very simple problems. They were generating uh, large tables um, of numbers that were hard to calculate by hand, Um, and 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 you know things like that where it's. It's math. They were just doing math faster and uh, able to just scale up the amount of math they could do in a given amount of time. And uh, People thought that, well, if so much of the problem is optimizing it so that we can fit it into this tiny memory or make it, instead of making it take... 72 hours to run this computation we could get it down to 36 or 24 hours that would be nice if we just had a faster computer um people thought that you know it would just kind of magically happen but instead what happened was we had bigger ambitions for what software should do so we by 1972 we started wanting computers to be interactive, and we wanted them to uh you know do other non mathematical things like lay out our documents or um uh, manage more complex things like accounting and banking and stuff like that that it wasn't just uh let's generate let's simulate a like a nuclear explosion or let's decrypt some." Some um, encrypted military communication. You know, it's it, it's becoming we're, we're, our ambitions are are getting bigger, and that those ambitions are outpacing the the Moore's law of our computers getting um, better, right? So if you pr- if you wanted to write these early pieces of software, like I mean, honestly, they might be like Simple for loops these days, <laughs> uh, maybe a little more sophisticated than that. But like generating a table of like the same formula on every row, like, eh, we could probably write that in a few hours. It took them a long time to do, um, and that has been solved. But we have this other problem, this what he's calling the software crisis, and we'll get to it a little bit later. So he's trying to explain the causes. Um, I, I, I want to just focus on what he calls the major cause. As long as there were no machines, programming was no problem at all. When we had a few weak computers, programming became a mild problem. And now we have gigantic computers. Programming has become an an equally gigantic problem, as the power of available machines grew by a factor of more than a thousand society's ambitions to apply these machines grew in proportion, and it was the poor programmer who found his or her job in this exploded field of tension between ends and means okay a little high language there, um but you know he's basically saying. Programmers are the ones who have to deal with the ambition
1: uh, that these new pieces of hardware are are unlocking.
0: Then, in the mid-60s, something terrible happened. The computers of the so-called third generation made their appearance. If your definition of price is the price to be paid for the hardware. Little will prevent you from ending up with a design that is terribly hard to program for. For instance, the order code might be such as to enforce either upon the programmer or upon the system early binding decisions, presenting conflicts that really cannot be resolved. And to a large extent, these unpleasant possibilities seem to have become reality. So he's kind of lamenting this, um, what he's calling the third generation of computing computers. I think we don't use those anymore. Um, So I just wanted to bring that up. That like he feels like there was a problem
1: here. Um, All right, he he talks about how um, as an industry, as
0: programmers, programmers should have a lot of say in how the computers get designed, and. He talks about, well, I'll, I'll read it. I regret that it is not customary for scientific journals in the computing area to publish reviews of newly announced computers in much the same way as we review scientific publications. To review machines would be at least as important. Oh, so That's interesting. I think that's a really um, interesting point that uh, programmers have to use... The computers, at least at that time, they had to use the computers that were available commercially, and why not have programmers review them um and talk about how you know easy or difficult certain types of software would be to write for them um that you know he laments in the previous section about how much um the, the they were they were designed by cost, right? So, like, yes, this is a computer. It is a it works, and and it's not that expensive. Why is it not expensive? Well, we like we saved a few transistors by not uh, uh, by not having a convenient instruction set, <laughs> basically. All right. The reason that I have paid for for paid the above attention to the hardware scene is because I have the feeling that one of the most important aspects of any computing tool is its influence on the thinking habits of those who try to use it, and because I have reasons to believe that that influence is many times stronger than is commonly assumed. So he's making this argument that I think was touched on in the In the reasons for him getting the award, that this perception of problems at the foundation of program design, um, that the hardware that we use does influence our thinking habits. Right? The hardware that we use influences our thinking habits. So much more than it, oh, this is really inconvenient to program for. If you program for it long enough you will find that your program programming has been influenced by that and perhaps in a bad way
1: so we should be careful what machines we use okay so he's going to
0: talk about some different projects in the history of computing that he wants to touch on In the beginning, there was the EDZAC in Cambridge, England, and I think it quite impressive that right from the start, the notion of a subroutine library played a central role in the design of that machine. It is now 25 years later, and the computing scene has changed dramatically, but the notion of basic software is still with us, and the notion of the closed subroutine is still one of the key concepts in programming. It has survived three generations of computers, and it will survive a few more, because it caters for the implementation of one of our basic patterns of abstraction. Its importance has been underestimated in the design of the third-generation computers, in which the great number of explicitly named registers of the arithmetic unit implies a large overhead on the subroutine mechanism." All right. There's, that was a long thing. So He's talking about the EDZAC. And how it had a subroutine library. So you could write some subroutines and reuse them for different purposes. You know, you're going to calculate this table, you're going to calculate that other thing. Uh, There's a lot of commonality, common math formulas between them. Um, Why don't we write those down one time and reuse them? And so then they designed the hardware to make calling subroutines. Efficient. And so he's talking about how in the third generation they messed that up and they put all these named registers that you have to save and restore every time you do a subroutine call and you return from that subroutine. This reminds me a lot of the Lambda, the ultimate go to uh, paper that came out just about the same time as this. In the 70s, um, talking about how uh, compilers and program writers at the time believed that to be safe, you had to do all this saving of registers. And so calling a subroutine was very expensive. And Scheme showed that, or the Scheme team, Showed that uh, in, in some cases, subroutine calls could be compiled down to a single jump instruction, that you didn't need to save all these registers. Um, so I, I wonder how that influences this, that um, perhaps with a, with a nice compiler, the the problems with this third generation could be kind of papered over. But still, it was thought at the time that uh, the hardware had a large effect. The design of the hardware, the number of registers, what registers had to be saved explicitly, made it uh, very uh, was very significant in how performance subroutines ran. So he's bringing that up um, and, well, I just wonder if that holds up
1: after this the lamb to the ultimate go-to stuff. Okay. The second major
0: development on the software scene that I would like to mention is the birth of Fortran. At that time, this was a project of great temerity, and the people responsible for it deserve our great admiration. It would be Absolutely unfair to blame their shortcomings that only became apparent after a decade or so of extensive usage. In retrospect, we must rate Fortran as a successful coding technique, but with very few effective aids to conception. Okay, so he's saying Fortran was important, it was good for its time. Okay. But then, he says, the sooner we can forget that Fortran ever existed, the better. For as a vehicle of thought, it is no longer adequate. It wastes our brain power, and it is too risky and therefore too expensive to use. Okay, footnote here. Um, remember I talked about Dijkstra's famous arrogance? Well, just stay tuned because this goes on. Fortran's tragic fate has been its wide acceptance. Mentally chaining thousands and thousands of programmers to our past mistakes, I pray daily that more of my fellow programmers may find the means of freeing themselves from the curse of compatibility. Okay, so I I broke in there to talk about arrogance. Um, I feel like this is one of those things that really um, gave him that like this kind of. Ranting uh, gave him this reputation for being arrogant. Arrogance doesn't mean you think you know everything, or you,
1: you know, you think you're better than other people. What it, I mean, really, what it means is you don't know how to speak in such a way that you are. Clear in your place
0: <laughs> right. Uh, you know, someone you could ask Dijkstra and, and ask him, "Do you think you're better than the Fortran people or do you think you know better than someone who likes Fortran? And he might say, no, it's my opinion and whatever. I'm, I'm just stating it. So like he he would know, right? But then when he speaks, it sounds like, oh man, you really are digging into this thing. Uh, just going on and on, and you know, using all of your powers of wordplay and everything to really um, give it to them. Um, but okay, so what he's saying is that Fortran, um, Fortran was important. Uh, the Fortran project uh, developed quite a lot of what of what we would consider like programming language theory, compilers. Parsing that kind of stuff. Uh, it was a it was hard. It took a lot of person years to do because they were starting from scratch and they didn't have like big machines like we do today. Um, and then this curse of compatibility. Uh, the problem was it was developed for a particular machine, and then some other uh, you know set of programmers with a different machine. Would look at that and say, Oh, that's really nice. Let me program one for our machine. And so they would program one that was very similar but different. And so now, if you wrote pro- Fortran code for one machine, it was very hard to port it over. And so he's talking about the
1: curse of compatibility. Okay. That is just one of the problems that I think he has with Fortran. Okay.
0: The third project I would not like to leave unmentioned is LISP, a fascinating enterprise of a completely different nature. With a few very basic principles at its foundation, it has shown a remarkable stability. Besides that, LISP has been the carrier for a considerable number of, in a sense, our most sophisticated computer applications. LISP has jokingly been described as, the most intelligent way to misuse a computer, I think that description a great compliment because it transmits the full flavor of liberation. It has assisted a number of our most gifted fellow humans in thinking previously impossible thoughts. Okay, so that's really interesting. Um, for one, you know, I'm a lisper, so I like I like it when it's mentioned. He doesn't go into much about why he likes it except that it was kind of like you know the language for creative people trying trying to do really hard things and uh having to have you know crazy language to be able to do that and to give them the freedom to do it um also this he's he's maybe the third or fourth well, I guess you got to count McCarthy. So maybe the fifth—I don't remember. I didn't count well, but it's, hes, he's like—it's common to mention Lisp in these touring awards, uh, which is interesting, right? It's probably the most cited language. Maybe Algol is cited just as much. Okay, the fourth project to be mentioned is Algol sixty. The famous report on the algorithmic language Algol 60 is the fruit of a genuine effort to carry abstraction a vital step further and to define in programming language a programming language in a an implementation independent way. So the Algol 60 uh, specification um, was in the what we call BNF. Uh, Bacchus Naur form was developed in order to write that specification. So, something we still use today when we're developing grammars. Only very few documents as short as this have had an equally profound influence on the computing community. Uh, so, I think this is really important. Um, Algol is kind of, I mean, forgotten in a lot of ways. Like, no one writes in Algol, but it was. It, what he's saying was important about it was that it was the first time someone tried to write a specification for a language, the semantics of that language, outside of the computer it's going to run on. Okay, so remember, he's the one. Dijkstra's the one who said that computer programming is as much about computers as astronomy is about telescopes. Right? So, this idea that like, we should not be developing a Fortran on this one machine, and then another Fortran on this machine, and then now we have this problem of compatibility. It would be really cool to be able to write something, um, a specification, and then he was the first to implement a compiler, as we saw in the, uh, in the bio. Now, he's also saying how cool it was that it was so short. Right, so That that will come up later. The strength of BNF, that's Bacchus Naur form, the strength of BNF as a defining device is responsible for what I regard as one of the weaknesses of the language. An over-elaborate and not too systematic syntax could now be crammed into the confines of very few pages. With a device as powerful as BNF. The report on the algorithmic language ALGOL 60 should have been much shorter. Okay, so he's critiquing it. He's saying it gives you too much power. It's with all the, you know, if you wrote a parser uh, engine that used BNF, you can write a lot of cool stuff, like a really complicated syntax, and Offload all of the backtracking and logic and stuff to the compiler itself. And so now you've got this really complicated syntax. And it's really a nice syntax for writing the syntax. So it's really compact. Um, Wouldn't it be better if there was some correlation between the complexity of the syntax and the Complexity of its expression. And maybe there is, you know, maybe you could say, well, with such a powerful language, you should be able to put the syntax in half a page
1: instead of a f- very few pages, like he says. And then he's saying, like, it was short, but it could have been shorter.
0: Okay, and this echoes something like Alan Kay, where he was like, okay, the syntax should fit on a t shirt. Syntax of a language. And he always brags about how the syntax of small talk could fit on a note card, you know, a three inch by five inch card. Um,
1: Very, very interesting that there's that correlation there, that synchronicity.
0: Finally, although the subject is not a pleasant one, I must mention PL1 a programming language for which the defining documentation is of a frightening size and complexity. Using PL1 must be like flying a plane with 7,000 buttons, switches, and handles to manipulate in the cockpit. And if I have to describe the influence PL1 can have on its users, the closest metaphor that comes to my mind is that of a drug. I remember a lecture given in defense of PL1 by a man who described himself as one of its devoted users, but within a one-hour lecture in praise of PL1, he managed to ask for the addition of about 50 new features, little supposing that the main source of his problems could very well be that it contained already far too many features. The speaker displayed all the
1: depressing symptoms of addiction. I don't think I'm going to comment on that. I think it stands for itself. So much for the past.
0: I think that we have learned so much that within a few years, programming can be an activity vastly different from what it has been up till now. So different that we had better prepare ourselves for the shock. The vision is that, well before the 70s have run to completion, we shall be able to design and implement the kind of systems that are now straining our programming ability at the expense of only a few percent in man-years of what they cost us now, and that besides that, these systems will be virtually free
1: of bugs." Okay, Before we go into his vision
0: just want to reflect a little bit. It's 2021. And I wonder I wonder, wonder wonder if we have that now. So, we have to um, we have to uh, really use the historical context. We can't look at it from today. In 1972, He says the kind of systems that are now straining our programming ability. Okay? So what were they programming in 1972?
1: Not what would we like to program today? Do could we write those things,
0: like he said, in a like an order of
1: magnitude less time and virtually free of bugs. Okay, so we have to we have to give them the benefit of the doubt
0: there, right? Because today our software our, our, what we, how we're working, um, what's available to us in terms of tooling and open source software libraries that we can use. The size, I mean just the size of the software.
1: The problems we're putting it towards, those are very different from in 1972.
0: So, to give him the benefit of the doubt here, I think we could say that yes. Uh, If we, like today, I can't look at the end of the 70s. It's hard to do that. Um, But today, we could write a 1972 program
1: a problem that they were having trouble with much faster and almost no bugs
0: okay i'm going to say that now why do i say that um from my understanding and i think this this requires a lot more research than i'm actually willing to do to get it to be Totally accurate, so take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt, but I believe that a lot of the bugs were memory management bugs and at this time in nineteen seventy two and also they were programming in very um,
1: inelegant languages let's say and I think today, with
0: the fact that we don't use go to's, thanks to Dykstra, and we have languages like our compilers are very reliable, and we have good garbage collection with like array bounce checks and things uh that we probably could we probably could get. You know, 1972 piece of software written an order of magnitude faster. I think so. And have, and like virtually free of bugs, meaning we don't have any memory leaks or um, buffer overruns or the kinds of bugs that they had at that time. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to say that just, you know, to be very generous and say, yes, we have that now at least. Uh, in 2021. Um, but then I also think that perhaps it's not um not ambitious enough his vision. You know, now that now that I'm putting it in those details, in order of magnitude, um you know, he says a few percent in man-years of what they cost us now and virtually free of bugs. And those kind of go together because bug debugging is um, one of the most expensive
1: things that we do um Right, and I don't know if that would solve the software crisis
0: an <laughs> order of magnitude uh we probably need needed much more than that now, of course, the same problem I don't know why he didn't foresee this, but the same problem that happened before happened several times over. The kinds of software we want to write, our ambitions have grown. Uh, We want to write software that has global scale. So, you know, imagine something that has really hard scale problems. Um, Something like Google or a uh, global network CDN system. Uh, I mean, even something like Twitter or Facebook like those things have really hard problems um and they're much I mean they took a long time to write but they're much harder than what they were doing in the 70s just in terms of the size the amount of users they have concurrently the they're much more complicated they're running um you know thousands of on thousands of computers all over the world uh, they have to run these machine learning algorithms i mean it's the size and scale that we're doing now compared to 1972 is you know many orders of magnitude you know a, a million a billion times more sophisticated than what they were doing back then and of course We're using languages that were kind of designed in the, you know, 30 years ago, so
1: that's a problem. Okay, Uh, but let's go into what he was talking about. I, I, but
0: you, you see what I'm saying with the problem. Before we go into that, there is a problem with his vision here, which is that he didn't foresee that this would continue, that as computers got faster and faster and smaller and smaller and cheaper and cheaper. Like our ambitions would grow and outpace what we had uh, available at the time. Um, he didn't foresee that that would continue, even though he brought it up in this talk. So that's interesting. Anyway, I think that uh, he has an interesting vision. I don't quite agree with it, <laughs> but we'll read it. Those who want really reliable software will discover that they must find means of avoiding the majority of bugs to start with, and as a result, the programming process will become cheaper. If you want more effective programmers, you will discover that they should not waste their time debugging. They should not introduce the bugs to start with. okay i mean i i agree with that it's much cheaper to not introduce the bugs to start with but do we have a good idea of how to do that um i
1: don't know if we do and certainly not in a way that makes it cheaper like
0: perhaps you know he couldn't see that bugs that people were dealing with in 1972 would be different from the bugs that we're dealing with today, that we've opened up new types of bugs that were very, maybe very rare back in in that time, but we've solved a lot of the bugs that were common then. I mentioned some before, buffer overruns, um, memory leaks. Uh, memory access errors. These are not that common anymore. In if you're using languages with you know like Java or JavaScript or C sharp, these languages don't have these problems that much. Um, still, if you're using a language from this time like C, uh, you do have have those problems, and you know we're still paying for that. Uh, but you know, I think largely we've eliminated the kinds of bugs that he might have been thinking about. Um, there are still bugs of logic, there are still bugs of design, so meaning I programmed what I wanted correctly, but I wanted the wrong thing. <laughs> right i I didn't realize that that would do that, you know. Um, it does what I wanted, but it's not the right thing. Um, and then, of course, there are bugs that have to do with the sheer complexity of the software, the distributed system bugs, and things like that, that I don't know if they were dealing with at that time. There seem to be three major conditions that must be fulfilled. The world at large must recognize the need for the change. Secondly, the economic need for it must be sufficiently strong, and thirdly, the change must be technically feasible. Okay, so I just want to like emphasize again. I read his vision. That was it. That we would somehow avoid bugs to begin with, and this would give us that order of magnitude
1: faster software. With virtually no bugs. Okay, that was it. And so he's got these three
0: things for why he thinks a revolution would happen before the end of the 70s. The world at large must recognize the need for the change, the economic need for it must be strong and the change must be technically feasible. All right, so he's going to go over those and and argue for them. Only a few years ago, to talk about a software crisis was blasphemy. The turning point was the conference on software engineering in Garmisch, October 1968, a conference that created a sensation as there occurred the first open admission of the software crisis. Our first condition seems to be satisfied. Um, that might be an interesting paper to read the Conference on Software Engineering report, uh, where the idea of the software crisis was first openly talked about. Of course, the software crisis, um, we don't talk about it so much anymore, but what it meant was like, there were all these projects that were over time and over budget. Some of them just failed completely to, to materialize after spending millions of dollars. And it was so common, they were calling it the software crisis. Basically, we don't know how to build software. That's what they were saying. Nowadays, one often encounters. The opinion that in the 60s programming has been an overpaid profession, and that in the coming years programmer salaries may be expected to go down. Okay, so he's talking about the economic argument now. He says the 1968 conference, which happened four years before this, opened the doors. People are like now openly admitting that we don't know how to write software on time and on budget. It's open. The doors are open. We believe it. So we have the first condition. To recognize the need for the change. Okay, now the economic argument is number two, and people are talking about programmers being overpaid and that their soft their their salaries may go down. Certainly, that did. I mean, from now, like programmers are really highly paid now, and so. From 1972 to now, 50 years later, 49 years later, it doesn't seem to have happened. I don't know if there was a dip or something, but in, that's interesting. Like, I was very shocked when I read that. So, um, he's going to talk about this opinion. Perhaps the programmers of the past decade have not done so good a job as they should have done. Society is getting dissatisfied with the performance of programmers and of their products. Okay, so that he's trying to explain why people think that programming salary should go down. So now he's going to try to argue for why he thinks it might. The price to be paid for the development of the software is of the same order of magnitude as the price of the hardware needed. But hardware manufacturers tell us that in the next decade, hardware prices can be expected to drop with a factor of 10. If software development were to continue to be the same clumsy and expensive process as it is now, things would get completely out of balance. You cannot expect society to accept this, and therefore we must learn to program an order of magnitude more effectively. Uh I mean maybe from 1972 that argument makes sense but looking back it just didn't it just did not play out. Um I think that he failed to
1: do the projections. Uh the projections to to my
0: mind the important ones are that as computers get cheaper more people will want them. And so there is a more of a market for software. And so therefore, you can spend more money developing the software because you have more people to sell it to. So he kind of did not foresee what was happening like at that time, but it was still not big that there was a software industry growing. That it wasn't, we are a company, we have $10 million, let's spend $5 million on a piece of hardware and then $5 million to develop our own custom software for it. What happened in the 70s was the personal computer came out. and Now it's cheap enough, a few thousand dollars, for a company, that a small company, to buy it And now uh, they need software for it. And they can't afford custom software because big companies were spending $5 million on that. And so what happens? Well, people develop a software industry, a software market where you write the software once. It's a general purpose piece of software like a spreadsheet. And then you sell it to everyone who has a personal computer. And that could happen in mini computers, not just microcomputers as well. And so he failed to foresee there was a kind of a shift from custom software per company to reselling the same software, so recouping the cost of building the software uh, by having a larger market to sell to. And uh, I mean, that continues today, right? We still have we still we have now software as a service and things like that where a company will pay a hundred dollars $1, a thousand dollars a month for their software, depending on the software right, but it costs millions to make because those
1: companies can resell to um uh, to lots of people okay, so he was wrong, I mean. Just looking back, he was wrong. Uh,
0: Third condition. Is it technically feasible? I think it might be, and I shall give you six arguments in support of that opinion. A study of program structure has revealed that programs, even alternative programs for the same task and with the same mathematical content, can differ tremendously. In their intellectual manageability. A number of rules have been discovered, violation of which will either seriously impair or totally destroy the intellectual manageability of the program. Okay, so I I actually think that this third technically feasible is the more interesting argument, Um, not only because you know it has a chance of being right uh, but it kind of gets deeper into his thinking about what software how software should
1: be developed and this idea of intellectual manageability is key right that you
0: have to keep software manageable in your mind otherwise we, that's that's kind of the cause of the software crisis
1: Cause of bugs and everything. So he's talking about these rules that there's been study
0: of how people program, and they found that, well, if you stick to these rules, you can still solve the problem, but you keep it simpler, you keep it easier to keep in your mind. These rules are of two kinds. Those of the first kind are easily imposed mechanically. By a suitably chosen programming language, examples are the exclusion of go to statements and of procedures with more than one output parameter, okay, so excluding go to statements and excluding procedures with more than one output parameter, meaning you just have the return value, what we consider today the return of a procedure instead of you know setting you know a mutation right, so it's kind of talking about like a functional style. Okay, so there's that's the first kind, if you can enforce it in the language. For those of the second kind, I see no way of imposing them mechanically. As it seems to need some sort of automatic theorem prover, for which I have no existence proof. Therefore, for the time being and perhaps forever, the rules of the second kind present themselves as elements of discipline required from the programmer Some of the rules I have in mind are so clear that they can be taught and that there never need to be an argument as to whether a program a given program violates them or not So maybe the computer can't check them he doesn't have that theorem prover he talks about but another person could check them and know clearly whether they were the rules were violated or not Examples are the requirements that no loop should be written down without providing a proof for termination or without stating the relation whose invariance will not be destroyed by the execution of the repeatable statement.
1: Okay, so he's saying here's a rule. Before you write a loop, write a little proof that shows or maybe
0: not before but alongside this loop prove that it will terminate just a little little informal proof that shows like yeah
1: there's this isn't going to go in an infinite loop you got to write it down that's the rule okay there's is there a way to make a
0: theorem prover that does that i mean idris comes to mind I think that there is some people have shown that um, Idris can detect like infinite loops. Um, That would be interesting. Uh, Maybe that's the kind of thing he had in mind for a theorem prover. I'm not sure. Um, There's also stuff like TLA+ that has like a theorem prover outside the language. Maybe something like that would be good too. I now suggest. That we confine ourselves to the design and implementation of intellectually manageable programs. Okay, so he says, just like before, he said that there's these rules that if you follow them, they keep your program intellectually manageable. He gave a couple of examples, no go tos, and then you have to write a proof for your loops that they're gonna terminate. Okay, so if you follow these rules, you will confine yourself to intellectually manageable programs. If someone fears that this restriction is so severe that we cannot live with it, I can reassure him or her. The class of intellectually manageable programs is still sufficiently rich to contain many very realistic programs for any problem capable of algorithmic solution. We must not forget that it is not, it is not our business to make programs. It is our business to design classes of computations that will display a desired behavior. The suggestion of confining ourselves to intellectually manageable programs is the basis for the first two of my announced six arguments. Okay, so this is background, okay so He's kind of making this claim that we should restrict ourselves to intellectually manageable programs and that even with that restriction we can still solve any problem that we need to. And there's still variation within it. There's still it's still rich enough that we can find different solutions to the same problem, you know, in case we have to optimize or, or whatever. Now he makes this weird claim, which I think takes a little bit of rereading and etc. We must not forget that it's not our business to make programs. It is our business to design classes of computations that will display a desired behavior okay, so program- like then maybe this is a misnomer then that we're not programmers. We are designing classes of computation that display a desired behavior. The program is just the artifact that we have to create in order to you know manifest that class of computation right. You- you give a program to the computer and it, manif- and it makes a computation. So we're designing that. That's where we're designing that computation. <sighs> okay. That's, that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, it's definitely different from some of the other things I've read uh, on this podcast. Um, what comes to mind is in the Stratified design paper that they were talking about how programs were made for humans to read. So it's communication between people, you know, probably on a team, uh, and um, only secondarily for the computer to run it, uh, which is kind of contradicting what he's saying. Um, So very interesting that there's this contradiction here. All right. So, we're going to go over these six arguments one at a time.
1: They're in order. Here we
0: go. Argument 1 is that as the programmer only needs to consider intellectually manageable programs, the alternatives he or she is choosing from are much much easier to cope with. Okay, so Basically, they're easier programs. Right? They're not they're not hard they're not of the hard variety, they're of the easy variety because they're intellectually manageable. That's a very simple statement. Uh, doesn't need much more than that. Argument two. Okay, and so so how does that relate to what he's trying to prove, trying to argue for? They're easier programs, therefore easier to write, easier to you know, fewer bugs. Right, that's what he's saying. Easier to write, fewer bugs. Okay, argument two is that as soon as we have decided to restrict ourselves to the subset of the intellectually manageable programs, we have achieved, once and for all, a drastic reduction of the solution space to be considered. And this argument is distinct from argument one. Okay. When I first read it, I was like, that's not distinct, that's the same thing. He's saying there's just fewer programs that we have to deal with. Fewer choices, fewer alternatives, the solution space is smaller.
1: Okay, so that, again, he's saying that this means less time, fewer bugs.
0: Argument three. Today, a usual technique is to make a program and then to test it. But, Program testing can be a, a very effective way to show the presence of bugs, but it is hopelessly inadequate for showing their absence. The only effective way to raise the confidence level of a program significantly is to give a convincing proof of its correctness. But one should not first make the program and then prove its correctness, because then the requirement of proving, providing the proof would only increase the poor programmer's burden. On the contrary, the programmer should let correctness proof and program grow hand in hand. If one first asks oneself what the structure of a convincing proof would be, and having found this, then constructs a program with satisfying this proof's requirements, then these correctness concerns turn out to be a very effective heuristic guidance. Okay, there's a lot to talk about in here. This is a big big statement here. First two are easy, right? First argument, easier programs. Second argument, fewer programs. This one is saying that if you write the proof and the program hand in hand, your job is easier. You will have no you know fewer bugs and it'll be faster.
1: Let's break this down. So he says that a usual technique is to
0: make a program and then test it, but you need to write a proof or you can't know if it's correct. So this kind of contradicts a quote by Knuth. Uh, I think it was a note that he wrote on a, to a, uh, a colleague about a program. He said, um, be careful with this code. I have proven it correct, but I have not, I've only proven it correct. I have not tested it. <laughs> so um, I don't know about you, but I, um, in my experience, uh, proving something correct is not enough. I think you need proof and test. If you wanted to go that extra mile uh to prove it, I often don't prove it to be honest, but I will test, and I have found when I try to prove I still need to run it to be sure um so I think
1: that he's uh, hmm he's showing a uh, uh, i don't know.
0: A bias that somehow you can just prove everything correct, Um, and I'm not a bias. It's his opinion, but I, I don't, I don't agree with it. It just doesn't
1: ring true with me that that you can that that's even feasible. That you don't need the tests, basically. Um OK, I do like the idea of proving alongside writing
0: the code, right? Um, I think that, that that just like TDD has an effect on how you program, like the resulting code will be different if you do like test code, test code, test code. What if you did proof code, proof code, proof code? He's saying because you have to prove it, that's going to have an influence on you. Uh, Like he's saying this if one first asks oneself what the structure of a convincing proof would be, and having found this, then constructs a program satisfying this proof's requirements, then these correctness concerns turn out to be a very effective heuristic guidance. Okay, so he's saying it's very often easier. To think in terms of proofs, and then write a the program. Uh, there's a very interesting lecture that I I hope I can find again. I I watched it years ago, probably on YouTube, or even maybe like earlier than that, um, where he was showing uh, how to solve problems, you know, puzzles. Uh, Using his technique. And one of the puzzles he showed was what's called the wolf sheep cabbage problem. It's got other names too. Um, and the idea is you're on one side of a river and you have to cross the river, but the boat is not big enough to carry your wolf, your sheep, and your cabbage across all at the same time. In fact, it's, it only, you can only fit one of them. So you have to get everything across without anything eating the other thing, right? So the sheep is going to eat the cabbage if you leave them alone together, and the, sh- the wolf is going to eat the sheep. Okay. It's a, it's a common problem uh, that we all face every day. Like our sheep are going to eat cabbages, and how do we deal with that, right? So we need software to solve this problem. Um, and he uh, showed in his lecture.
1: Through his, you know, method, that what would a proof look like? And
0: he showed that, like, look, one thing that we can do is kind
1: of simplify this proof. That it looks like there's three different things: there's the sheep, there's the wolf, there's
0: the cabbage. But really, what we're saying is, the sheep, that's the different one. Because the sheep can't be alone with the wolf, and the sheep can't be alone with the cabbage. But the wolf will not eat the cabbage, so they can be alone together. So we can call those alpha. The wolf is an alpha, and the the cabbage is alpha. And then this third thing, we'll call it something else, we'll call it beta. And so now the constraint is we cannot have an alpha and a beta together alone. Okay. We can have two alphas alone, but we can't have an alpha and a beta. Okay, so now we have this constraint that's very clear and mathematically you know workable uh, that allows us to now proceed with a method for crossing the
1: river, you know getting everything across. Uh, and so I think that that's what he's trying to get at here that Uh,
0: If you start with the proof and figure out what would it even look like if I could prove that this software will will always work, it's actually kind of like a
1: modeling step that allows, and then you can just program that model. And I think there's something to that. All right, argument four, the amount of intellectual effort
0: needed to design a program depends on the program length. We all know that the only mental tool by means of which a very finite piece of reasoning can cover a myriad of cases is called abstraction. As a result, the effect of exploitation Of his or her powers of abstraction must be regarded as one of the most vital activities of a competent programmer. In this connection, it might be worthwhile to point out that the purpose of abstracting is not to be vague, but to create a new semantic level in which one can be absolutely precise. Okay, so he's just kind of setting this up, and I wanted to stop here. That's one of those quotes that everyone loves from Dijkstra. I'll read it again. The point, the purpose of abstracting is not to be vague, but to create a new semantic level in which one can be absolutely precise. He's talking about levels of abstraction. um, A lot of cool ideas in here. Um, but He's saying the only thing that we can do, the only thing we know that helps us with the mental burden of keeping a program in our memory or in our mind is abstraction. By suitable, uh, suitable application of our powers of abstraction, the intellectual effort required to conceive or to understand a program need not grow more than proportional to program length. Okay, so remember, he's saying that the amount of intellectual effort needed to design a program depends on the program length, and he's saying that if you use abstraction, the length of the program, number of lines, I guess, number of number of tokens in the program, uh, that we with good abstraction, the amount of, of intellectual effort it takes. Is proportional to program length.
1: So, program grows a little bit, we have to use a little bit more mental power. Okay, it's not done yet, this
0: argument. The identification of a number of patterns of abstraction that play a vital role in the whole process of composing programs. Okay, so he's identified these, or people have identified them. Enough is known about these patterns of abstraction, that you could devote a lecture to each of them, which I think is an excuse for not listing them here and talking about them. What the familiarity and conscious knowledge of these patterns of abstraction imply dawned upon me when I realized that, had they been common knowledge 15 years ago, the step from BNF to syntax directed compilers, for instance, could have taken a few minutes instead of a few years. Okay. Let's let's talk about this one. First I'll explain it. So he's saying we over time have developed we we've come to understand and identified a number of patterns of abstraction that play a vital role in programming patterns of abstraction okay we know enough about these um patterns well that they're each each kind of sophisticated
1: but they're learnable okay and if you're familiar with them it's faster
0: you can take make leaps right And so remember in the bio, just as as one example, he was writing the ALGOL 60, came up with the idea of using a stack
1: to manage the recursive function calls that were possible in ALGOL. So the stack, that is a pattern of abstraction. What if we had known that 15 years ago? I mean, we know we it was more than 15 years ago, but imagine in 1972. What if we had known that when we were developing Fortran, right? What if we had all the compiler technology we have today?
0: Would we and like couldn't we just write Algol in in a weekend, right? So not just so like this is this is important. It's not just we have the software and the tools like we already have BNF compilers, right? or BNF um uh, engines that can read BNF and, and then generate a parser that can read that language. We have those, yes, we have the software, and you can just Npm install it, right? It's real real easy. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the the ideas, the abstractions themselves.
1: For instance, you can go from BNF, you can write you can write a thing that doesn't just parse it, but it
0: actually compiles it in one step. Syntax direct to compiler. And anyway, he's saying that we've accumulated Enough of these, and we're still accumulating them. And if you're familiar with them, the, the problems that you face are easier. They're, you can code them faster. I wish he would have listed more of these um, here. I've supposed that they're in his books and other publications that he's written. It would be nice to, to see them. But I think the wolf, sheep, cabbage uh, idea. That I talked about is one of them. This idea of abstracting away the wolf, sheep, cabbage, and turning them into alpha, beta, alpha. And now you are you can create a constraint that directs the solution. Like it's very clear, once you have that constraint, the solution is, well, I have to bring the sheep across because it's a beta. And I can leave them alone. So I'll put that sheep on the other side and I'll come back and then I'll get an alpha but I can't leave the two to alone so I have to take the the beta back and now I can take the alpha and leave the beta
1: alone see like it just flows natural it's just it, it's it becomes very obvious okay so I wish that we had more
0: of these patterns of abstraction I do want to say I don't think that he's talking about patterns in the Design pattern sense in the Christopher Alexander sense. I don't I don't think he hasn't ever mentioned that like lineage of ideas that came from Christopher Alexander's architecture. Yeah, he's he's not doing that. He's
1: just saying patterns like in a general way, like undefined way. Okay. Um again,
0: that's the fourth argument saying that we have these patterns that make make coding
1: faster. Fifth argument. Patterns of abstraction, mind you. Right? So like stuff like
0: we know to use a stack. Oh, we know to use a you know, this this particular data structure for these kinds of problems. Things like Fifth argument. The tools we are trying to use And The language or notation we are using to express or record our thoughts are the major factors determining what we can think or express at all. The analysis of the influence that programming languages have on the thinking habits of their users and the recognition that, by now, brain power is by far our scarcest resource. These together give us a new collection of yardsticks. For
1: comparing the relative merits of various programming languages. Okay, there's a lot to say, uh, so I'll just I'll just get started. Uh, First, I'll just explain
0: what he says. Um, Programming languages have an effect on how we think, Um, a big effect, one of the major factors, Uh, and that. We can perhaps, or I think he's not saying perhaps, we can compare the merits of programming languages
1: simply based on that. Like, how much brain power does it take
0: to use this language or use this feature from this language? That's really, I think that's cool. I I don't know if we're doing that when we're uh, comparing programming languages. Um, In terms of, uh, you know, if you were to review, well, this language has this feature and it lets you do this, and isn't this cool? Like, we're not saying, but man, I tried it when I was really tired and I couldn't get it working, right? That's interesting. and to, to create a yardstick of that, like how many mm, how many different files do you have to look at to understand how a thing works, or how many uh, keywords are there, that you have to understand. right? A simpler language and have fewer keywords, and therefore maybe be easier to understand. I mean, there's some metrics that you could probably
1: put on there. Okay, so uh, he continues with this fifth argument.
0: I see a great future for very systematic and very modest programming languages. Not only Algol 60's four clause, but even Fortran's do loop may find themselves thrown
1: out as being too baroque. So this is a call for simplicity. Uh, I, I mean
0: it sounds hard to argue with that simple languages are are easier to work with and will make it make you develop faster and um at the same time it seems like most languages are going the other way adding features uh, i was helping someone with with doing modern java java 8 streams and stuff like I don't know, does it make the language better to have all that stuff? Don't I don't know. I think the jury is out. My opinion is probably not. It's just more stuff to learn. It's more complicated. He's talking about the for loop and the do loop as being too complicated. So I, I really appreciate that, especially I'm a you know, I'm a Lisper. Lisp is I mean a very simple language compared to other languages and uh also rings true with what Alan Kay talks about with like the syntax fitting
1: on one uh note card I don't think he's alone here in saying that So he talks about this informal study that they uh talked about
0: So he's not just talking about simpler, like less baroque, like oh, all these little things you have to get right to make this work, which is like a for loop, you know, like a JavaScript for loop where you have to declare a variable and initialize it and then put a semicolon, and then you have this condition under which the loop continues to run, and then you have another semicolon, and then you have a thing that runs for every iteration. Like it's, it's weird. It's just weird. There's like all these little things you have to learn. Um, but so he's not just talking about simpler is better. He's got another deeper idea here. In this informal study, he got a bunch of experienced programmers, volunteers, to code a solution. And this particular problem, they couldn't solve it. And he's going to talk about them. Their notion of repetition was so tightly connected to the idea of an associated controlled variable to be stepped up that they were mentally blocked from seeing the obvious.
1: Okay, so the languages they had used this is what he's saying here the languages that they used
0: loops were always about stepping up a variable as you you know have as an index into an array that they had done that so much that they could not see another obvious solution which he doesn't explain but it would be a much simpler solution if you just used a loop to not increment a variable as an array index but they were so entrained so used to doing that remember he's talking about a language influences your habits of thought they couldn't see the simple solution and so by special casing the 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 loop the for loop is a special case of loop where you have these initialized variables what if you don't have a variable to initialize right so people are now being trained just through repetition that a loop needs a variable and it usually starts at 0 and we're going to increment it each time doesn't i++ don't you isn't that what you have to write i++ at the end of your for loop like it takes a while to undo that i mean i feel i feel this that there's a lot of unlearning that i've had to do as i get better at programming cuz i had all these habits that maybe there were crutches that helped me get further with less experience with you know my limited experience at that time and now I don't need to do that but I can write these different loops that don't have variables and whatever. So um anyway he's saying that he's he's arguing that the problem is not just that the language is more complicated But that these the the particular choices that the languages have made have ruined programmers from seeing obvious solutions. And maybe it's because they thought for loop oh, that'll make this easy, this one thing, but then it makes other things hard because you get used to writing it that way. It's not just we need simpler languages. He is saying that we need simpler languages, but that the languages have to be. Uh, we have to like throw out notions of of special casing and you know things like that. Those are complications, but those complications
1: have real consequences on how people program. Programming will remain
0: very difficult because once we have freed ourselves from the circumstantial cumbersomeness, we will find ourselves free to tackle the problems that are now well beyond our programming capacity. Okay, so he does say, yes, they are going to get harder. We're going to tackle programs beyond our programming capacity. So it is going to stay hard. Kind of contradicting himself, right? I mean, he did not include that
1: in his original vision. Right? Okay. Sixth argument. Again, these are all arguments for
0: programming that's going to get faster and uh, fewer bugs. Up till now, I have not mentioned the word hierarchy. But I think that it is fair to say that this is a key concept for all systems embodying a nicely factored solution. The only problems that we can really solve in a satisfactory manner are those that finally admit a nicely factored solution. The best way to learn to live with our limitations is to know them. By the time that we are sufficiently modest to try factored solutions only. Because the other efforts escape our intellectual grip, we shall do our utmost to avoid all those interfaces, impairing our ability to factor the system in a helpful way. This is a lot. I'll have to go into it. So He's talking about hierarchy. Uh, He is saying that it is a key pattern for how we should structure our abstractions and our solutions. By hierarchy, he means um, we—I mean, basically stratified design—that we can build, um, build on top of existing solutions, and then build on top of those, and then build on top of those. The only problems we can really solve in a satisfactory manner are those that finally admit a nicely factored solution. So he's saying, like, the ones that we can actually. Solve in this way that he's been talking about of, you know, intellectually, what is, what's the intellectually manageable are the ones that use hierarchy. They use abstraction in this particular pattern. Um, and those are the ones that work. And again, he's talking about, yes, it's a constraint that we're setting, that we're going to uh, work within these hierarchical programs but that's a limitation of ourselves of our brains that that's how we work that's how we understand things and that that is just a limitation we have to learn to live with and the sooner we learn to live with
1: it the better um so that's his final argument that we will uh, Finally, accept that we have to make hierarchical solutions, and that that that's sufficient.
0: It's like it's enough. Uh, we'll be able to solve all of our problems anyway using hierarchical solutions. So that's all six arguments. I think I want to I want to go through them one more time. So there's easier programs. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have. We're going to write easier programs because they're intellectually manageable. We're going to write fewer programs because not all programs are intellectually manageable. Not write fewer programs. We have fewer programs to choose from. Um, if you write your proof and program hand in hand, it makes the programming easier. And of course, fewer bugs because you've written a proof. Uh, argument four is that. We have these patterns of abstraction
1: that if you know them uh, make programming faster. Uh, fifth, we, we are
0: we can converge on simple languages that will help us see more obvious solutions. And then fifth,
1: we will finally accept that we are limited. Are, That we uh, prefer or we need a hierarchical solution. That'll help us write programs faster. Okay, now he's gonna conclude. Let me conclude. Automatic computers have now been with
0: us for a quarter of a century. But they have had a great impact on our society in their, capaci- in their capacity of tools. But in that capacity, their influence will be but a ripple on the surface of our culture, compared with the much more profound influence they will have in their capacity of intellectual challenge, which will be without precedent in the cultural history of mankind. Okay, he's making some very flowery pronouncements here. Um. But He's saying that, yes, they're important as tools, but that they will influence our intellectual culture more. uh, Hierarchical systems seem to have the property that something considered as an undivided entity on one level is considered as a composite object on the next lower level of greater detail. So, you know, we have a brick, and, you know, a wall is made of bricks, and a brick's made of crystals, and the crystals are made of molecules. Uh, he's, he's showing like we, we, that's how we understand it. This is kind of a continuation of argument six, but he's going to go further. The number of levels that can be distinguished meaningfully in a hierarchical system is kind of proportional. To the logarithm of the ratio between the largest and the smallest grain Okay, I'm going to stop here and explain this because he, he talked about it weird. Um, when you make a hierarchy like that, you've got the smallest one at the bottom, the crystals made of molecules, the so molecules are really tiny, and the bigger thing is the wall, right? So the Number of levels that you can actually find in there you don't want to go from molecule to wall right you don't want to build a wall out of molecules it's too hard, right you have to like place each molecule no but there's a certain number of levels that make sense, and that proportion so the, the, sorry the number of levels is proportional to the 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 ratio of the size of the big thing to the size of the
1: little The logarithm of that. OK, So you say, well, a wall is so much mass, and a molecule is so much mass.
0: So there's like 30. <laughs> 30 orders of magnitude, 10 to the 30 difference, you know, in that proportion. And then you take the logarithm of that, which is 30. So like... You couldn't imagine the
1: um there being more than thirty levels between okay um right, so unless the ratio is
0: very large, you can't expect many levels okay he's he's fair he's not speaking exactly precisely like you can actually count the number of appropriate levels he's just speaking. In general, that there's you know, a hierarchy implies a tree, and the tree implies logarithmic growth
1: of the number of levels. Right In computer programming, our basic building block has an
0: associated time grain of less than a microsecond, but our programs may take hours of computation time. I do not know. Of any other technology covering a ratio of 10 to the, I can't read it, 10 to the 10? The, The superscript is small, or more. The computer, by virtue of its fantastic speed, seems to be the first to provide us with an environment where highly hierarchical artifacts are both possible and necessary. All right, so let's talk about this again. He's saying, uh, our smallest operation, so like one ad, let's say, takes less than a microsecond now that's today it's like nanosecond
1: um, But then our programs run for hours. They're doing trillions of in that time more than that
0: and so you you say well hours of programming or hours of computation where the smallest one is like nanosecond the ratio of that is really big he says 10 to the 10 but i'm it's probably more and so that affords it's a it's a deep tree so that affords more levels okay that's what he calls Deeply highly hierarchical artifacts. They're possible and necessary. The challenge is so unique that this novel experience can teach us a lot about ourselves. It should deepen our understanding of the processes of design and creation. It should give us better control over the task of organizing our thoughts. If it did not do so, to my taste, we should not deserve the computer at all. So this is a very grand statement and something I think I agree with. Um, it teaches us a lot about ourselves. There's a lot to learn about understanding and how we design things and how we build things. How can we I mean, how can we control these tiny little ads and somehow turn it into something meaningful? To us at a a level of, you know, where we're thinking on terms of like seconds or minutes. It's interesting. Okay, now I'm going to reread the last bit that I read in the introduction. We shall do a much better programming job provided that we approach the task with a full appreciation of its tremendous difficulty, provided that we stick to modest. And elegant programming languages, provided that we respect the intrinsic limitations of the human mind and approach the task as very humble programmers. So, we finally have the title,
1: which is called The Humble Programmer. And it kind of sums it up nicely. Uh, He's
0: basically saying that. We need to realize that we're not that smart. And the main way of being able to write better software is to make our software simpler, make our tools simpler, do a little more proof, maybe a lot more proofs, use hierarchies and tools of abstraction that. Have proven themselves in like other fields and just not try to do something too complicated, (laughs) right? Take a step back and just work on the stuff that we can deal with. Um, Now, I I mean, I can't say I disagree, but I don't know if that's gonna solve the problem. (laughs) I can't disagree that. It's useful to, like, you know, a lot of people, okay, let me put it this way. Um, Why do we write tests? Because we're not that smart. Like, we're not that good at programming. We can't just, like, blast out
1: the correct program the first time. So, recognizing that, we write a test first.
0: To make sure that we uh, understand what we're going to code, and like we've limited the problem so that we can you know it's a sm- we start with one test and it- we can code it. this is, This is all like basic TDD stuff.
1: Okay, but we have TDD. We have things like that. We still have a software. So
0: like one of the things that I didn't mention I was thinking about mentioning.
1: Is he talks about uh, before he talked about how our main okay, let me read it the analysis of the influence that programming languages have on
0: the thinking habits of their users and the recognition that by now brain power is by far our scarcest resource, these together give us a new collection of yardsticks for comparing the relative merits of
1: various programming languages so just to explain this again
0: he's saying that our scarcest resource is our brain power that that is the bottleneck on programming and to program more faster we need to make sure that the problems we're solving can squeeze through that bottleneck, <laughs> this, this tiny brain that we got. We have to make the program squeeze through that. Oh, I, I, and I think that's right, but I also think that there's, things might have changed some in this time since then. Uh, programming software is built by teams of people over a long period of time. and There's a growing recognition that it's not just individual programmers' brain time or brain capacity that's the bottleneck. There's also a bottleneck of communication between programmers. Hiring a person is very expensive. You hire them to your team. They have to learn. An entire code base, they have to learn your practices, your processes. All these things are very important. And it's not just oh this is a big thing to squeeze through their little little brain. We all have little brains and they're new and so you just have to squeeze it all into their brain. Uh it's not just that. Right? Now you have to communicate with them and coordinate and and set up, you know, I'll work on this while you work on that, and like, they're gonna have to talk to each other at some point. So, you know, we we are dealing with this multi-person, like mega brain, over brain, over mind, of all of everyone on the team, right? Uh, and we have to consider our languages with that in mind. Our languages, our tools, our processes, everything that we do. Uh, so, uh, like I said, I agree with this. Like, one way to like the, the the bottleneck, the constraint on on how fast a person can program is like how much they can get in their head at one time. So, like, let's squeeze it down. Simpler languages, simpler uh ways of programming uh intellectually manageable he calls them just squeeze it all down uh and and like write proofs that'll help shrink down well,
1: like how it works okay now it can go through my head and i can write it correctly okay now bring another person we have this very our
0: communication, you know, inside my head, the cells are communicating pretty good. But now I have to communicate with the cells. <laughs> they have to communicate with the cells in someone else's head, right? So that's like another, maybe a, a harder constraint on it, because we we can't. We're building software that we can't build alone. I mean, not given the the timeline we have, right? We need to ship. Faster, so we needed more people, right? And so now we have to somehow all communicate, maybe through the code, through the artifact of the code. But that should be a factor, is what I'm saying. Um, I I think that he's got interesting arguments. I don't think that uh, they have come to pass. Uh, I don't think that we have significantly simpler.
1: Um, programs, programming language. I don't think we write proofs. Um, I I
0: think that there is another factor that maybe he didn't take into account, uh, which is tooling. That tooling can potentially expand our intellectual capacity uh, as you know, like a machine. Person symbiosis uh, for in, you know just thinking for instance I don't have to keep the code in my mind I can do a jump to definition right or the compiler can catch certain errors that I might make you know something like that we're passing off a lot of the what used to have to be done thinking into our uh, into our machine. I agree with that. I think we should pass off more of that. And that was not part of his argument at all, right? There's no tooling. He wasn't talking about tooling. Um, so that's interesting. I think simpler language with a really powerful tool. Like, wow, that sounds like an, you know even more number of um, orders of magnitude that could be gained here. Uh, I also this this kind of talk about Reducing the cost of software reminds me a lot of the No Silver Bullet essay by Fred Brooks that talks about how, at a certain point, probably around this time, he feels like there won't be another order of magnitude increase. That a lot of the time that was spent, of course, Dijkstra does not do a time analysis, right? 't know how much actual software he wrote <laughs> Dykstra. that is um meaning like commercial software uh this was, i think a lot of it was uh, academic programs where it just has to calculate the right answer it doesn't have to you know run you know reliably on on hardware or be you know interacting with humans and stuff like that. Um, but maybe, I'm, I don't know. I didn't do the, that research. But what Fred Brooks argued was that a lot of the time in programming was basically waiting. You had to submit your program for, to, to, as a batch job, it would get into a queue, and then you'd get a printout later, maybe days later. And then you find that it didn't work, and you had this debugging you had to do, and you had to go read your program again and find the bug, and all you know. And now you think you got it. You think you got it. Okay, double check. All right, now submit it again, and then you go through the queue again, et cetera. Um, And that by the time you wrote that no silver bullet essay, the that time had been reduced. Now, especially now with every programmer has at least one computer like that's kind of a very common practice you're not sharing uh, a mainframe um you don't have to do that waiting like you can know very quickly within seconds whether your program ran correctly so that he was saying that like it, we've reduced all of this time. I don't think we can get another 10x out of it. Uh, and Dijkstra is arguing that we can, but it has to be done through simpler languages, a discipline to uh, only accept simple solutions, use hierarchies, use these patterns of abstraction. We'll see. I don't think I don't know if we've we've proven that. I don't know if we even know what these patterns of abstraction he was talking about are about.
1: Um, also,
0: does it make sense to think that a person who's having trouble with
1: a program? Okay, let me let me put it this way: If a person knows the pattern of abstraction. you know perhaps they have to already be they have to be smarter than
0: you think to understand that pattern of abstraction or more experienced than you think and so you're talking he's talking about well we have to consider that we're humble well maybe a humble programmer cannot
1: understand those right like that there's the already we're talking about this bottleneck on programming that is our brain power. Perhaps you, you, your bottleneck needs to be a little bit bigger before you can even admit
0: the abstraction patterns he was talking Maybe it has to be bigger before you can even realize whether
1: your solution... Is intellectually manageable. Right? Like that could be,
0: maybe it's not just brain power, maybe it's just experience, right? But that, that is not something that you can teach at the beginning. Like <laughs> the, the, there's, you know, for instance, there's a difference between a senior and a junior engineer. And that difference is that maybe the senior engineer says, hey, that sounds like a really complicated solution. What should be a simple problem. And the junior engineer doesn't see that problem. They don't see that it's complicated, right? Simplicity and elegance is something that takes time and experience to learn.
1: And we can't just say, be humble. And that is the problem. You might say, I
0: have to be humble. And this is a complicated solution, but I don't know what else to do. I, I don't know how to make this simpler. Right? Okay. Uh, well, that's, that's just about all I have to say about this. I've really enjoyed this. Dykstra uh, is a very interesting character. Um, I suggest you watch some of the recorded talks or lectures he's given that you can find on YouTube. Um, very. Very interesting person, uh, very opinionated, and uh, also brilliant. I mean, obviously, he he invented all sorts of stuff that we take for granted today. Um, and I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed thinking through it. I wish that he maybe did have a better answer than what he gave, which was just like. We need to, like, like the main problem is that we're, we think we're too smart. (laughs) We think we're smarter than we are, and like, if we just recognize that we were not that smart, we would use easier techniques. I don't, I don't. That doesn't seem to be true. Like, that might be something that you get to as you get older and more mature and more experienced. Like oh, I was overcomplicating it in my youth. It's actually really simple. But then you try to show a youth that solution, and they're like, "How did you get there? I don't know. I don't. You know. You see that it works, but like I could never do that. You know." Um.
1: Okay. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, my name is Eric Normand. As always, rock on.